thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, just a quick note before we begin this week's show. The episode you're about to hear first aired on January 24th, 2021, and we learned today on May 16th, 2021, that our guest on this episode, Ray Janes, has passed away. Naturally, our condolences go out to the Janes family and all of his former squadron mates. And, you know, in a moment, you'll hear our usual enthusiastic tone on the show. But, of course, we are saddened by his loss. Rest in peace, sir. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 102. This week, it's all about the F-102, but come on. You can read all about the aircraft specifications and weapons and all that online. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's really about the amazing pilots and their incredible stories. I was flying out of Andrews, and uh, the firelight came on, and I uh, pulled the throttle back to um, a low setting and started to glide back to the base, glided all the way back, trying to stimulate force landing backwards, because that's the way I hit the high key, and I uh, landed safely, and uh, later on, the... Uh, Chief Master Sergeant, who was the true expert on the airplane, came up to me on the ramp and said, Lieutenant, you're the luckiest guy on this ramp tonight. So that engine couldn't have run three more minutes. So it got me back. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. That voice you just heard before our announcer, Clint Bell, that is today's guest, retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Ray Janes, who joins us to discuss this week's Century Series aircraft, the Convair F-102 Delta Dagger. We'll get to that in a few minutes, but first off, hello. My name is Vincent Aiello. You found the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and I'm glad you did. We're having a good time. We've got a few announcements and listener questions to cover. And then guess what? Our buddy Bruce Gordon will be back to help with the feature interview. Anyway, I hope you're all doing well. I certainly am. In fact, I am officially a full-time podcaster now. <laughs> That's right, at least temporarily. I uh, started a two-month leave of absence from my airline, and I am decidedly not commuting from my home in San Diego to my proposed new base in New York. Nothing against you New Yorkers. I just don't want to fly all the way from corner to corner on this great country. But I did actually drive the whole state of California this past week. Stopped and saw a friend, fly fished for a couple days, but made it up here to Southern Oregon. Oregon, where I'm helping take care of some family business and just enjoying some real winter weather, or at least sort of, but not the San Diego weather, which is always so good. But anyway, hope you're all doing well. And let's see, what have I got for announcements? Oh, our graphic designer, Yannick Krauss, came up with some really cool Century Series t-shirts you can find on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. 
click on the shop link. Uh, he's got a voodoo shirt that debuted last week with episode 101 and the Delta Dagger shirt. Guess what? It arrives with today's episode. So go check it out. I think you'll really like it. And the artwork on the episode and the artwork on the shirt are very similar. So if you like what he does, go take a look at those. Also, this past week, we released a new blog on our website. Our past B-52 Stratofortress guest, Ken Katz, he penned an article musing about the differences between missile guidance and control. You might recall that I found myself kind of struggling with those concepts back on episode 95 on SAMs. And so uh, Primetime saved the day. He put together an article for us, and you can read all about the differences there. All right, let's see. I recently received two emails I want to share with you. The first is from a listener in India who writes, I am very proud to inform you that I have made it in the final selection list for Aeronautical Engineer Officer of the Indian Air Force. Sir, I am very thankful that I came across such an informative podcast. I've been listening since May 2019, and the discussion hosted here actually helped me a lot in my preparations all this time. The panel was very impressed by my knowledge of systems, technologies, and other critical information about modern aircraft technologies I learned and gained from this podcast. They asked a ton of questions on technical aspects and were quite satisfied. When they asked about the source of information and how I learned these concepts, I quoted your show and several guest speakers who came over time. I suggested your channel to several candidates who came to attend service selection boards also, and I hope that they gain information and achieve success. <laughs> that is really an awesome email. I love receiving those. Thanks very much. But like a flight where we used to land and we'd just touch briefly on the goods. There's also some others. And the other email I want to share with you was from a concerned listener who wrote, I hate to pick on a negative, but I feel obliged to express my disappointment in your answer in episode 101 regarding the fact checking on your headline that Rico was the only pilot with three kills. I'm surprised that you brushed off the disrespect by omission to the others who served their countries and achieved the same feat. But to then proceed to confess that you persist and defend this misinformation in the name of personal profit is beyond what I could hear without comment. A statement like that damages your brand. I'm left wondering how much of the past is not factual, but just created in the name of entertainment and profit. Well, you know, that email kind of stings a little, and I share it for a couple reasons. First, he's got a point, and if he took the time to write it, odds are others were thinking it too. Secondly, you know, I've always tried to make this show three things, authentic, factual, and personal. Now, when you're trying to be your true self in front of a microphone, you know, I confess, sometimes you suddenly discover blind spots you didn't previously recognize you had. I mean, it's a little bit like seeing somebody without makeup. You see the flaws and blemishes. So, you know, I appreciate the feedback and always strive to improve no matter what I'm doing. And so I appreciate the email. All right. That's it for announcements. Let's take some listener questions. First is an email from Craig O'Mara, who says, I know that given enough time and money, most pilots can be trained to do most missions, but I've always been curious about the fighter pilot profession. Obviously, the best fighter pilot would have great hands and a great head, but if you had to choose someone with only one of these abilities, would you rather go into combat with a pilot who has better stick and rudder skills or better ability to assess the threat, i.e. better at headwork? 
Well, that's a good question, Craig. Never really contemplated such a question before, but I'll take the headwork any day because frankly, it doesn't matter how well you do the wrong thing. What matters is being able to choose the right from wrong. And frankly, if you're that good at understanding, you probably know if you don't have the skills in whatever situation you find yourself. And so you can remove yourself from it. So yeah, both are important, but I'll take headwork any day. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hi, Jello. My name is Dale Pickering from Lovettsville, Virginia. First and foremost, I want to say thanks to you, your co-hosts and guests, for your service to this great country of ours. We really appreciate it. My question is, you go to a lot of air shows throughout the country and you see a lot of like vintage era, mainly World War II era, fighters, bombers, transports, things like that flying. I guess my question is, in the future of these fourth-generation fighters and aircraft get phased out over time, will some of those possibly be able to come into civilian hands for, like, restorations? And so they could be kept flying in, in air shows and stuff like that. Any uh, information you can give on that would be greatly appreciated. And Thank you. And uh, once again, thank you for your service and love the podcast. Great information. I've learned so much since I've been listening and uh, keep up the good work and have a great day. Thank you. All right. Good question, Dale. So you didn't ask it, but for museums, civilian museums, relatively easy, as I understand it, for them to get non-flying aircraft to put on display. But flying aircraft, you know, I refer back to episode 77 on the Boneyard. If you remember our discussion with Regen, she talked about the fact that you can't just go down to the facility there and pick up an old A4 or some other jet. You've got to buy them from somewhere else. And in fact, there are companies now doing that. There is a company bringing in old Australian F-18s, and I've heard of others that are bringing them in from, or I should say F-16s, in from other countries. And the idea is that we sold them to those countries, so we can't dictate what they do, but we can buy them and bring them back in these cases for commercial air services, i.e. contracted red air. I think we also learned from our buddy, Paul Wood, who owns a handful of uh, warbirds that, yeah, I mean, eventually some of these will find their way to air shows. For right now, the F-18s and F-16s that are finding their way back are for uh, commercial red air. So good question. All right. Andrew McDonald emails in your YouTube FA-18 pre-flight behind the scenes video. It's mentioned that the pins for safing the landing gear are placed on board in case the jet has to divert. How does it work for ordnance? I was under the impression that the arming pins for whatever weapons are loaded are removed right before launch and therefore don't go out with the aircraft. What happens if a jet has to divert with live ordnance on board, especially to a field without naval ordnance personnel available? Are naval aviators trained to safe their own weapons in the event this occurs? Well, the answer to that last question is no. At least nobody ever trained me to do that. A couple things could happen here, Andrew. Number one, if they think divert situations could be more possible, they might take some spare pins and put them inside the jet already in the eventuality that you divert and so you have them available. Or you just, frankly, don't safe your ordnance and you park in an appropriate location. Or possibly, depending on where you divert, if you can borrow some pins, you might be able to do that. But... A safe pin is just one more measure. It's not the only measure. So it is a safety consideration. But if you divert, I mean, you're not going to not divert because you don't have the pins. But if you do divert somewhere and you don't have pins, they're going to park you somewhere well away from everything else. All right, let's take another phone call. Hey, Jello, this is uh, Chris Bracken. I'm calling from Fort Collins, Colorado. 
just got a quick story followed by a relevant question. I was at an air show in the early 2000s. I was fairly young, and there was a Marine Hornet sitting static just on the ramp, and there was a guy sitting on the ground leaning up against the drop tank, and of all activities he decided to do, he lit him up a cigarette. And <laughs> I did the right thing and just told him, like, hey, man, there's jet fuel in there. Like, it, it, things could go badly if you're still smoking. And so he got up and went away. But it brings me to my question, which is, as far as static displays, I've heard you talk about how you flew in a couple Hornets for static. And in my experience with air shows, as far as static displays, like a lot of the Gen 4 jets just sit there. They're not protected like the fifth gen guys are. There's really no protection from people possibly tampering with or sabotaging the airplane. Like the pilots, they're answering questions and stuff, but they're just there out in the open. And I'm wondering if there's any type of preemptive or precautionary things that you or maintenance will do before, like once the air show's over, the ramp is back to a sterile environment security-wise. Like, is there anything that you guys do on your walk around? Is there anything to check to make sure that the airplane hasn't been messed with while it was open to the public? And But that's really all I wanted to know. You know, I'm wondering how the airplanes stay protected and safe and in one piece generally from idiots who will do things to them. So anyway, love the show. Keep up the great work and uh, hope to hear your response. Bye. All right, Chris. Well, thanks. And uh, first off, I received my MBA from Colorado State, Fort Collins a long time ago. So uh, nice area. I'm jealous. I like where you live based on the proximity to the activities available there. That's pretty cool. So yeah, the guy who was smoking next to the drop tank, I mean, he's clearly wrong. Most air shows I've been to, you've got to go to a designated area and it's well away from everything. And that being said, jet fuel is not gasoline based, it's kerosene based. And I've heard, I've never seen, but I've heard of people that'll take a bucket of jet fuel and throw a lit cigarette into it and nothing happens. So it's not nearly as flammable as gasoline and Probably there was not a lot of risk there, but yeah, I mean, your points are all valid and to your concern, what you do is you check your aircraft really, really well before you leave. Now, if someone is nefariously putting screws or small things in little cracks and crevices, you got to look for that, but generally that doesn't seem to happen. But also, as long as your panels are closed, short of throwing things down the intake or exhaust, there's really not that much someone can do that you're not going to see. I mean, again, it could happen, but I've never heard of it being a problem. So, gee, Chris, thanks for giving everybody bad ideas. Just kidding. All right, let's take another email. This is from Cameron Wright from the Atlanta, Georgia area. He says, have you ever crossed paths with a naval aviator who only flew land-based aircraft their whole career? Yes, I have, Cameron. They're called P3 pilots. And to put a finer point on that, P-3 pilots, yeah, I mean, obviously you don't land the P-3 on a carrier. They do deploy, but they end up getting shooter tours a lot. So they'll end up on the carrier. I guess it's just the Navy's way of making sure they get their sufficient time at sea. But they will be the aviators that will come out and run the catapult gear and shoot us basically off. That's their penance for otherwise getting a lot of per diem and and never uh, leaving land-based flying. Well, I'll tell you what, we have a shorter episode today, so why don't we keep going with the questions? Got a couple more phone calls here. First, let's take one from John. Hey, Vincent. Hey, John here. Hey, just had a quick concern. I love your podcast. Love everything you're doing. I just, uh, you know, listened to the bomber set, and you had a thing regarding the B-2 bomber, and just curious, you know, the whole thing I listened to, and there was never any mention of Jack Northrop regarding the flying wing 
you know, he was really the whole crux behind the entire B-2 bomber. Just curious as to why uh, that was never brought up. He brought up a lot of the engineers and pilots and everything that flew the flying wing and everything, but there's no mention of Jack Northrop. So just curious, maybe thinking you can uh, revisit that or what have you, but I just thought it really interesting. Thank you. Bye. All right, John, thanks for your question. And yep, guilty as charged. You know, I can't really give you a good answer. When I went out to, where did I go? Whitman Air Force Base in Missouri for the B-2 episode. I did a little bit of research, sure. But first off, sometimes I forget to say the things I want to say. And other times I just frankly don't know something. And yeah, I'm familiar with Jack Northrop and the flying wing, but it just didn't occur to me to mention it. And certainly it didn't occur to Wolf apparently either. So historically correct and relevant, but we didn't cover it. And so all I can do is apologize and tell you that, you know, sometimes podcasting is hard. You have an idea of the things you want to say and you turn on the microphone and you're just not as smart as you were before you turned it on. And for me, that's already a handicap. So, yep. Touche. We'll have to circle back to that as you recommend. All right, let's take another phone call. Hello, Jello. Again, thank you for such a wonderful podcast. My question is, growing up, I always saw F-15s with belly tanks, but it seems like in the last number of years, I'm seeing F-15s not with belly tanks, but with the wing tanks. And I just wonder, does that have something to do with issues with maybe fatigue on the airframe by hanging that belly tank and wing tanks are better? Or I don't know, just a question. And uh, maybe your buddy up there in Massachusetts can answer that question, but I see pictures of wing tanks, and I no longer see pictures of F-15s with belly tanks in the United States. I can't speak for Japan, Saudi Arabia, Israel, et cetera, but let me know your thoughts. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for your question. Now, not being an F-15 guy, I did not know the answer to this, of course, so I sent it to our old buddy, Spider-Man, Brian Camp, hero of our F-15 episode, and here is exactly what he wrote back. He says, highly observant listener there. True, in the late 1990s, the Eagle weapons officers pushed for a change to a daily configuration to fly with wing tanks instead of the old-school centerline training configuration, which was mostly flown in the previous decades. Reasons were simple. Number one, two wing tanks combined with a clean belly, i.e. no center tank or center pylon, has less drag than a centerline belly pylon tank with no wing tanks. Two, when the tanks are dry, the wing tank-only configuration is much more stable in slow-speed aircraft handling than the old centerline tank configuration, which felt like balancing on a fitness ball. And three, 4,000 pounds more fuel with the two wing tanks over a single centerline equals about 30 minutes of additional on-station or cap time. Hope this gets to the question, mock speed, Spidey. All right, so there you go. From the man himself with over 4,000 hours and a ton of experience in the F-15. Glad that we have a Rolodex of these kinds of folks because I couldn't answer that myself. All right, last, let's take a final phone call. Hello, my name is Carver Bowman. I'm calling from Kirbyville, Missouri. I'm currently a freshman in college majoring in engineering. My current plan is a commission to the Air Force or Navy through OTS or OCS after I graduate. I've always had the dream of flying fighter jets. Here's my question. I've heard a lot about drones replacing fighter pilots. If I plan on joining in three years, is this something I should be worried about? In your opinion, do you think that I will get out of college in time to be a fighter pilot before they become a thing of the past? Thanks for all that you do. Really appreciate all the information you're giving through the podcast. 
Well, if you are just now a freshman, then I think you're going to be just fine in three years because the F-35 is just starting to reach initial operating capability. The F-A-18 Super Hornet will be around for a long time. The F-15 and F-16 aren't going away anytime soon. Yeah, down the road, maybe your kids, I think that'll be an issue, but I don't think you'll have any trouble getting a manned seat when you finish. So good luck with that and let us know how it goes. Guess who's back, 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 back again. All right, well, guess who's back again? That's right, our Century Series co-host, Mr. Bruce Gordon. How you doing, Bruce? I'm doing fine here. <laughs> oh, good. Well, it's not been that long since we've heard from you last. What's new? Uh, nothing new. Uh, COVID has got everybody pinned down, but I'm doing quite well, thank you. <laughs> got my uh, first shot from the VA yesterday. Okay. Well, that means in a few weeks you'll go back for your second. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce, we're glad to have you back because on this week's interview, the F-102 Delta Dart, no, hold on, Dagger, uh, and that was planned as the listener will hear in a moment. (laughs) This interview is shorter than usual based on some recording challenges we experienced at the time, but you had a chance to listen. Any thoughts before we get to it? Yes, uh, I noted that Ray James was about five years older than I am. And he was there when I got there and I learned some of my flying from him. And I've got some stories about that. All right. Well, let's let retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Ray Janes take it away. And Bruce, you and I will meet on the backside. All right. Today, to help understand the F-102 Delta Dart, we have Mr. Ray Janes on the phone. How are you today, Ray? I'm doing fine. It's the Delta Dagger, not the Dart. Did I say that wrong already? Well, you're (laughs) definitely going to teach me about this airplane. Yes. (laughs) The Delta Dart is what, the F-106? Yes. Okay. Well, see, already I'm learning something because this is not an airplane I'm used to, and you're going to teach me more. But first, Ray, could we learn about you? Tell us where you're from and maybe a little bit about your military career. Okay. I graduated from what was the Air I got an ROTC commission from... uh, East Texas State Teachers College, which is now Texas A&M Commerce. I also have degrees from Central Michigan University, a master's degree, and a master's degree from Texas Christian University. I entered the service in 1954, and I had a choice of three jobs since I did not volunteer for flying school. And I picked air police work. And it turned out that air police work wasn't suited for me. And a friend of mine recommended I put it for flying school. So I did. Fortunately for me, I had my buddy from the officer's club conducting my physical. So I was accepted. Even though I'm slightly colorblind, I flew an entire career with that handicap with no problem. (laughs) I went into flying school in 1950. uh, and graduated in 1956, and my first squadron was in the 95th Squadron at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. I flew three combat airplanes there and was combat ready in all three. I started in the F-86D, then I transitioned to the F-102, and then at the end, I checked out in the F-106, but I was already on orders to go to Alaska but I did complete my checkout, and I flew most of the F-106 after that. 
But in Alaska, I flew the F-102 for three years. That was the front line for the Cold War. I learned an awful lot there about uh, operating the 102 and uh, operating in very hazardous weather conditions and did a very good job. After that, I went back to the Selfridge to the 94th Squadron and flew the F-106. Then I flew the OV-10 as a forward air controller in Vietnam. And I also flew Army helicopters while I was there. When I came back, I went to the 71st Squadron flying the F-106, and I was bored with doing that job at that time. I got an opportunity to go to the Pentagon, and I spent my last four years on active duty in the Pentagon as an aircraft allocator, and I transferred the first three F-106 squadrons to the National Guard. Anyway, I retired in 1975. Well. That is quite the background, and 21 years of service is impressive. Do you recall how many total flight hours you ended up with? A little, a little over 4,600, 850 of them are combat. Wow. Well, thank you for your service. That is quite the experiences in OV-10s in Vietnam. That's something I would love to hear about another time, but let's focus today on the F-102, if that's okay. Right. So as I understand reading a little bit about the Delta Dagger, it sounds like this is one of those interceptors designed right as the Cold War was starting to really come to a head, and we were worried about Soviet bombers, so they wanted an interceptor. Does that sound about right for the design background on this aircraft? Well, the interesting thing about the 102 is it didn't turn out to be the airplane that they intended. The airplane they intended was the F-106. But the 102 did an admirable job. And when I was flying the F-102 in Alaska, we had a situation which demonstrated the problem completely. Two airplanes were scrambled out of King Salmon to chase a Badger bomber. And they chased them and almost ran out of gas and landed at Nome. We had to transfer a lot of material and fuel in places there to finally get the airplanes back out of there. Later on, one of the pilots was instrumental in forming the Georgia Air Museum. And when they opened it, their guest speaker was the second in command to uh, John Kennedy. And when he met uh, back, he said, you're one of those two crazy fighter pilots, which almost started World War III. And I wanted you to know that John Kennedy himself caused you to abort. Max said, thanks, we barely made it back <laughs> because it was so late. They were counting down to the fire signal when they broke. Wow. What can you tell me about the different variants? I read there was two different prototypes, and then mainly it was the F-102A with a trainer version as well? Yes, there were two versions. There was the F-102, which was the single seat. And then there was the TF-102, which was a dual seat, and it was side-by-side. Side. They thought that would be easier for to train pilots that way, and it was much easier to train pilots that way, but the airplane would not go supersonic with that shape. So it really wasn't very good for anything but training. I see. Did you have a chance to fly that one, I'm guessing, in your training? Oh, yeah. You always took all your check rides in the TF-102. Mm -hmm. The pilot could sit right beside you and 
see what you were doing and see everything that you on the radar scope, just like you did. Right. It was a very good trainer. That's unique. It reminds me of maybe the A1 where they had side by side, but normally you think of fighters like an F-18 these days where the single seat and then the trainer version is in tandem, not side by side, but that's an interesting feature. Well, the F-106B was had a front and a back cockpit, which is the way most of them are now. All the training airplanes are that way now. Okay. And it was only the F-102A, as I understand. The B turned into the F-106, and there wasn't too many after that. Is that right? Right. And then the TF-102. Right. And then later, and this must have hurt a little bit, Ray, then later they had the QF-102, which was the drones. Yes, that was used as a drone, and most of them were shot down. <laughs> well, I imagine that didn't make you feel too good, but sometimes that's good use of an airplane as it gets older. Well, one of the interesting things about flying those airplanes was is that they were the actually were the models for all modern of the modern airplanes that uh, we use today. If you look at the shape of the F one hundred two and the F one hundred six and compare it to the stealth fighter, you'll see that uh, they were virtually the same shape and that the stealth fighter really originated with the design of the F-102 and F-106. Oh, that's very interesting. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. We were not considered fighter pilots because we didn't have a gun, but and also we were supposedly had poor visibility out of it. That you don't hear about it very much, but most of the time when we we met another airplane, we managed to hold our own pretty well. <laughs> okay, well, if you didn't have a gun, what weapons did you have? We only had missiles and rockets on the F one hundred two. And on the F-106, we only had missiles and the uh, MB-1 rocket, which was the nuclear. Yes. We had a, also had a nuclear missile on the F-102, and uh, we initially did not have an infrared, but we developed, and we, it was added later, and that was a big plus. Mm. That was uh, what we used to see through ECM and... Uh, bad weather and stuff like that and you could get up to the close enough to the fighter to where the radar would burn through and you could lock on so that your fire missiles would guide and also your radar missiles i see the forward firing rockets were those for air to air or for air to surface well all of our missiles were for air to air the f-102 carried uh, 2.75 rockets 
but they were not very successful because, uh, number one, the rocket was not ever a particularly good weapon. And number two is they were in the doors, one behind the other, and the first one would fire and then the second ones wouldn't. <laughs> so uh, they were not considered very effective and they quit carrying them later on. Okay. Now, Ray, I read that the F-102 could fly as high as over 50,000 feet and achieve Mach 1.2. I wonder if you remember your personal bests, how high you ever flew one, maybe how fast, and do you remember how many Gs you ever pulled? Oh, I flew it at 50,000 feet. Uh, That's another interesting story from Alaska. We had a pilot there who was intercepting a U-2, and he... uh, made a front snap-up attack going supersonic, and he pulled back on the stick with full burner, and uh, he was counting down when the airplane started going into the red with in the engine, and he shut the engine down, got the fire signal, turned it over, and came back down. He shot it at 55,000 feet. <laughs> wow. And do you remember pulling very many Gs in the F-102? Oh, I pulled as high as six or seven Gs in it. In fact, we got tired of board running intercepts, and we started doing some air-to-air work with another guy. And uh, he said it's the first time he ever saw contrails coming off the canopy. I was pulling so many Gs. Well, how was the fastest you ever had one? Uh, the fastest one I flew was the F-106. When I flew it, when I was checking out in it, I was in the B model. I was flying the round-gauge airplanes. The round-gauge airplanes had two airspeeds. One was for knots per minute, and the other one was for Mach. And you had to transition from the uh, knot gauge to the Mach gauge. So the debriefing was to climb at 300 knots until you reached a Mach. You started going supersonic. And then you were supposed to change over to the uh, Mach meter. So I was climbing out and holding at 300 knots. Guy in the back seat was just laughing and laughing and laughing. He said, have you looked at your uh, Mach meter lately? And I thought, oh, my goodness. I looked at my Mach meter, and I was going supersonic in the climb. <laughs> well, the natural response to lose airspeed is to pull back on the stick. I shot through 55,000 feet still an afterburner, and he just said, what are you going to do now, cowboy? <laughs> I said, I'm going to run this sucker on to leave it in burner until I get the nose down. And he said, that's a good plan. So I rudded it over, got the nose below the horizon, and hit 2.5 within seconds and boomed the whole state of Maryland. And I don't know whether this is true or not. They said a turkey farmer sued the Air Force because all of his turkeys panicked and piled up on each other and suffocated themselves. <laughs> oh, dear. And that was in an F-106? That was in an F-106, yes. Okay. Wow, 2.5. Do you remember how what the fastest you ever flew an F-102 was? The fastest I flew in the F-102 was 1.2. Okay. That was the max speed. And as it got with tanks on, you couldn't hardly get that. You had to have a clean burn. Yeah. I imagine. Just like the F-106, if the tank's on, you could get supersonic and you'd get Mach 2. But that's all. You could get 2.5. Yeah. 
Ray, when you think back to flying the F-102, what did you like the most about it? Well, after flying the F-86D, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, <laughs> having guided missiles and uh, infrared and all that super-duper stuff. I knew that I could do the mission. And in fact, uh, when I was flying the F-102, we proved the fact that uh, we could complete the mission under almost any conditions. We were doing an exercise against B-52 aircraft, and they were using their maximum ECM and chaff. They blanked out our radar ground stations, which were manual stations at the time, and so they couldn't give us any direction to get to the bombers. One of the guys used their old trail procedure, which we had in the F-86D, and he said, guide me to a point where in front of them, you know their direction, their altitude, get me in front of them and I'll define them. He found them himself, got his MA, and then guided all the rest of us in, and we shot them all down despite the fact that they were using maximum ECM. And <laughs> okay, so it had a really good radar, you're saying? Yes, the radar was very good on the F-102. When we were flying the F-86D, we were lucky to get a contact at five miles. Five miles was pretty standard for the F-102, and oftentimes you could get it up further out than that. What about what feature about the F-102 did you like the least, Ray? I didn't hate anything about the airplane. I loved everything. It got me back in several uh, conditions. Number one, I was flying out of Andrews, and uh, firelight came on, and I uh, pulled the throttle back to um, a low setting and started to glide back to the base, glided all the way back, shot a simulated force landing backwards because that's the way I hit the high key and uh, landed and safely. And uh, later on, the uh, chief master sergeant, who was the true expert on the airplane, came up to me on the ramp. He said, Lieutenant, you're the luckiest guy on this ramp tonight. So that engine couldn't have run three more minutes. <laughs> so it got me back. It got you home. Well, that's a good testament. And another time, I almost ran out of gas. That was the time I was doing that air combat maneuvering. Dash one tells you to climb to 30,000 feet and then uh, set low through power setting. And I thought, that is not a very good thing to do. So I uh, set a, got to 15,000 feet, set a low power setting, and then sort of half-glided back to the base. And then when I pulled into the chocks, I gave the stop signal to the uh, crew chief and shut the engine down. And he was very surprised when I did that. And normally, they tell you when they want you to shut it down. My friend beside me, my wingman, didn't do that. He climbed to 30,000 feet and ran out of gas taxiing back. Oh, <laughs> wow. Later, the guy came upstairs, the crew chief came upstairs and said, Captain, he said, I want to know if you had a problem with your fuel gauge. We put in more gas than you're supposed to have in that airplane. <laughs> I said, well, I just guess I used every drop for a change. <laughs> My goodness, Ray. That is crazy. So sounds like you enjoy the airplane. Was it a joy to fly or was it a lot of work? All interceptor flying was a lot of work. It had been characterized like playing video games where you have to not only use your fingers, 
but also your feet and your hands. <laughs> and your brain, of course. And when you think back to your flights, you've already shared some, but is there one that really sticks out in your memory, maybe your favorite flight? I've already pretty much shared those with you because, uh, like you say, it got sort of boring because you could, uh, the radar seemed to work well all the time and no trouble picking up the targets, no matter what the conditions were and getting going in, getting a fire signal. And of course, we also carry what we call WISMs. Their weapon system evaluators, they were missiles that recorded when you locked under the target, tracked the target all the way to past the fire signal, and uh, told you whether the, everything was operating properly in the uh, radar system. Wow. Or the IR system, whichever you're using. Right. What else should we know about the F-102? Well, it was a great airplane, and like I say, it was... Uh, the prototype for all the modern fighters we use today. All right, great. Well, let's just wrap it up. I want to just thank you for your time and your 21 years of military service and over 4,000 flight hours. You've had quite the experiences, Ray. All right. All right. Well, thanks again to Ray Janes. Bruce, that was a great interview. And you said you had some overlap with Ray, huh? Oh, yes. Uh, he and I went out on a intercept of a Russian crate, believe it or not, is the correct term for it. Okay. It was like the American C-47 Goonie Bird. And the Russians would fly that thing around, they called it an ice patrol, but we think it was kind of an elint mission. Mm. We went out in our F-102s, we were scrambled out of Galena, which is in the west side of Alaska. It's a little tiny base. We've found this crate down low on the ice, and he was not wanting to be intercepted. So Ray Jane stayed up high to relay messages and keep an eye on what went on, and I went down to do the intercept. As I came in, I got behind the crate and slowed my F-102 down and came in just as slowly as I could to take a good look at him. As soon as I was in a critical position, he turned hard into me. And he probably wanted me to stall out and crash into the ice because we were very low. But I pulled that F-102 up, uh, lit the afterburner, and basically stood it on the afterburner and was able to get out of that position. And that is an example of the good performance the F-102 had at low speeds. Hmm. You all talk about your high speeds. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you another couple of things that happened with low speed. Okay. There was a Russian Orthodox priest who had apparently churches in Russia off in Siberia, and across the Bering Strait in the U.S. And this Russian would fly his, it was a light airplane of some sort, across from Russia to the United States into Alaska. And we couldn't tell him when he got in there, he went so low that we couldn't pick up on radar. We didn't know where he landed. We heard he was a priest. He wasn't too high on our list. 
but we'd send out 102s to intercept him and try to get some identification on the airplane. And he would do just what that crate did to me. He would wait until an F-102 tried to come up behind him just as slow as an F-102 could fly. And we could uh, do pretty well at uh, 140, maybe down to 130 knots. We'd just come in on power and right behind him. And then he'd suddenly turn into the uh, F-102 and they'd have to pull off and we were never able to get his number. So intercepting a Russian light plane is not easy. Bruce, how did the F-102, and I don't mean to um, insult your ride here, but with the Delta wing and the older technology, I don't know what it had for leading edge or trailing edge flaps, but how is it so good at slow speed flight? That seems to be a, a skill of more modern fighters. Well, it had a very light wing loading. Okay. Uh, only 32 pounds per square foot, and I don't happen to have the numbers right with me here, but the F-4 had about 78 pounds per square foot, as I remember. Okay. So we had a, yeah, 78 pounds per square foot it had. Okay. So we were very light. It, we didn't have any bad characteristics to that airplane. Ooh. You could pull it up and stain it on its afterburner and rotate it. You could outturn just about anybody. It could even outturn the F-106 because I've been in the F-106 against an F-102, and they outturned me. So I can say that 102 could turn. Oh, boy. Well, let's get back to the beginning of Ray's interview, and he said something about the air police. I'm not familiar with that term. What's air police? Well, the air police is just like uh, the Army's got military police, the MPs, oh. and you Navy have got the shore patrol. Oh, uh, okay. Well, the Air Force has its air police. Same thing. And then the fact that he said he was, quote, slightly colorblind, boy, that should, Bruce, give hope to thousands of similarly afflicted <laughs> folks out there. Uh, and I hear from a lot of them all the time on this show. But I have to think they're a bit stricter these days. It's not going to just help you to know the guy doing the examination. No, I, I didn't have that problem. I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. Now, why do you suppose, Bruce, that they decided to make the two-seat version of the TF-102 side-by-side? I, I recognize the benefit of reaching over and squeezing the guy's oxygen hose, but I don't know. that To me, that just seems far more invasive to try to build the airframe versus, like in modern fighters, where you just, and I guess the F-106 as well, where you just sacrifice a little bit of the fuselage fuel and put the seat behind it. Well, I think that's exactly it. The designers thought it'd be good to have them together. As a result, it was not a supersonic airplane. You flew with it. We call it the Toad, actually. <laughs> T-O-A-D, the Toad. Okay. Because it was fat, and no, we didn't think very much of it, but we had to take our instrument checks in it and things like that because we didn't have a, any other two-seater. Of course. Yeah. All right. Well, so it was a necessary evil. You flew it when you had to, obviously, initial training and then refresher, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. And then why do you think the designers left the gun out of the F-102? I mean, you only had, I think you said before, you were surprised the F-101 had two genies. You said the F-102 only had one. So once you're done, wouldn't a gun help to maybe dispatch a couple more bombers? 
That was the 106 that had one genie, not the 102. But basically, the 102 was really ahead of its time. Okay. Hughes, Howard Hughes, could see ahead, and he could see the days of missiles. He was planning for it. Now, if you came in with a gun against a modern bomber, the modern bomber has a radar-controlled tail gun. and He's got a nice, stable platform to shoot from, and he'll probably shoot you down before you shoot him before down. you can shoot him down. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Oh, yeah. Then they had top turrets, too, that were controlled by someone inside the airplane, and some had bottom turrets. Okay. So you were coming into a Russian bear, and you're going to get a lot of bullets shot at you. Well, Ray didn't like the 2.75 rockets that we had on our missile bay doors. We carried 24 of them. The reason you fired 24 is they didn't all go straight. They went out in kind of a shotgun pattern, mm-hmm. wandering all over the place. <laughs> if you came in at a 90-degree beam, which was what we did on the F-86L, you would fire this blast of 24 rockets at a given point, and any one of those 2.5-inch rockets could take down a bomber if it hit it. And so you'd be coming in. They didn't have that much time to shoot at you. If you came in from the stern, of course, they'd have lots of time to shoot at you. Uh You came in from a beam, and they didn't have that much time, and you fired these 24 rockets, you got a good chance of hitting them. You liked it a little better than Ray. Okay. So, all right. You have to help me uh, remember the rest of this. My assumption that it was the two missiles versus the one. Did the F-102, did it not carry the genie then? Or what did I miss? I forgot already. It carried a guided. It came in later. It didn't start out with it. Uh, And I'm not sure that Ray, he was ahead of me, as I say. He left before I did. mm -hmm. But we had AIM-26A which was a guided nuclear weapon that had only one. I can't believe how small they got these nuclear weapons. It had a nuclear weapon with only 25 tons of TNT. It was 160th of the power of the genie. Hmm. Wow. So that was a very light warhead. It was actually used by the Army in their Davy Crockett rocket that was supposed to be fired from a Jeep. They could fire a nuclear weapon from a Jeep. So it was the same very light weapon. Okay. But ours was guided, and they found out that it was such a good weapon, they put an advanced guidance system in it, and it was actually had the same probability of kill with a conventional warhead as it did with a nuclear warhead. So why have the nuke? Right. So we didn't. We dropped the nuke. I can't help but giggle at this stuff, Bruce, because it's so foreign to the world we live in now. And and again, with the height of the Cold War, it must have been just really uncertain times. And we don't necessarily need to go down that rabbit hole. But it's just, it's so crazy to think about what you all went through both in the military, but also all the loved ones who had to worry was tonight, the night we're going to shoot nuclear (laughs) rockets from our Jeeps and from our fighters and then the bombers and goodness. So 
they said we had enough nuclear weapons to blow the top 10 feet off of Russia. Oh, gosh. We had so many nuclear weapons, you'd come out there on the ramp and you'd have 10 or 15 nuclear weapons lined up. Uh, I remember I, my wife brought me to the squadron one morning and we had uh, a bunch of nuclear weapons lying out there. And as I got out of the car, uh, I was thinking, you know, she doesn't even know what she's looking at. (laughs) Ignorance is bliss, they say. Yes. Yes. Now, Bruce, you have, we haven't really talked too much lately about some of the different stuff you offer. We do obviously appreciate your help on the show, but you have a Twitter account where you uh, respond to folks and make announcements and things. And you also have a YouTube channel. And on that YouTube channel, you have a video of you describing the scope that Ray seemed to appreciate, and I think you did too. Was it the F-102 scope you were talking about in that video? Yes, I had uh, two videos. I put them on on Facebook and on YouTube. They were called Radar Scopes, and one was Interceptor Tactics. Okay. And both of them showed what we were doing with the Radar Scopes. Take a look at those on both uh, Facebook and YouTube. All right. We'll try to put links to those in our show notes, uh, Bruce. We want to help you uh, promote what you're doing as much as possible. And on that note, you did tell us during our happy hour discussion back in early January that you've got the book Spirit of Attack, and you even told everybody how they can get a signed copy. So go back and listen to that happy hour replay if you're interested in that. Now, notoriety, Ray and I had to Again, kind of an abbreviated interview, but there was some notoriety. As I understand, there was a Wisconsin Air National Guard squadron that called themselves the Deuces Wild, and they used the F-102 to uh, go around and do demonstrations in the late 60s. Other than that, Bruce, I mean, obviously, we didn't get into a lot of the nitty-gritty, but what else do we need to know about the Delta Dagger? I could tell you about landing at Galena. Galena was a little base right on the edge of the Yukon River, in a bend in the Yukon River. Okay. And we had a 50-foot dike that went around it. And then they put, of course, all the lights on, the warning lights, uh, approach lights. We would have to come over that. It had only 7,800 feet of runway, which is pretty short. And it often was icy. We would come in there in the 102 with just dragging, I told you, good low-speed performance. Mm-hmm. And once I came over the dike and I could feel a little tick as I crossed the dike and I didn't know what it was. So I landed and came in and as I taxied in, the fire trucks followed me. <laughs> That's never good. <laughs> he came in, parked and opened the canopy and the fireman's getting out there and all his silver garb and all this. And I said, yeah. Yeah, is a problem? And he says, yes, you hit the approach lights. <laughs> I said, who, me? You know? <laughs> he says, yeah, they went flying. About this time, I looked at my left tire, and my left tire went flat. <laughs> Cut a hole in my tire. But um, I also landed on that ice there once, and uh, these days, they don't let you people fly off of really icy runways like we did. I mean, I landed on one. They said, um, it's pretty slick at the turnoff. Be careful. So I was being careful. I got to the turnoff, and I just barely touched the brakes. And my 
F-102 just slowly turned around, and I went down the runway backwards. <laughs> so you want a feeling of helplessness is to be in an airplane going backwards. Uh, yeah. Add a little bit of power and you stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless you're in a Harrier, I guess they can kind of do that. But, oh, dear, Bruce, you see, this is why we bring you back. You got such great stories and you're not afraid to share them. I appreciate that. Well, all right. Well, thanks again to you and to Ray Janes for tightening this all up on the F-102 Delta Dagger. At this point, we can begin wrapping up the show. We'd like to thank our new Patreon strike leads, William Wallace, Andrew McDonald, Philip Hammonds, Jim Bauman, and we have mission commanders David Sanchez and Mitchell Hill. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Bruce, like I said, you've been a godsend, and uh, we got the F-100 coming up next. Are you interested in coming back yet again? Oh, yes, I'd love to. Got some stories on the F-100, too. Didn't you fly, what, a handful of missions in Vietnam in that? 132 combat missions. I've uh, fired guns, dropped bombs, and uh, high drags and napalm and strafing. <laughs> so I've done all those things. All right. Well, you'll have to bill us for your time, Bruce, but we'll see you in 10 days. And for everyone else, we'll see you then as well for episode 103 on the F-100 here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.